Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Up North Prevention Podcast. Here you will find cutting edge information related to substance use issues through interviews, educational content, and helpful resources. For more information, please visit us at www.upnorthprevention.org. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello. How are you, Elisa? And I know Tim and um, everybody. Um, so I don't know if you want to just, uh, I understand this is kind of a question and answer session. So um, I didn't know if you wanted to kind of had any questions about uh, MOUD or um, anything specific. Just a little bit about me. I, uh, I'm an emergency medicine physician. I did a residency in that and then I um, did a uh, addiction fellowship. Um, so I'm double boarded in that. And then um, we run a SUD clinic here up in Houghton Lake. And we're pretty busy. We have about almost 300 patients. Um, I'm also the uh, one of the directors at uh, Bear River um, Rehab and Detox. And then I work uh, obviously with the MOC as a consulting physician as well. So um, we appreciate your time and let me know if you have any questions or, or kind of what you want to get into. Um, questions. Oh, first of all, I visited MidMichigan Health for my first time a month ago, probably as Suzanne did, because that's where we were able to get our first Fauci Ouchie shot. And we're due to get our next one tomorrow. So we'll be back there tomorrow. But that's quite oh, the campus. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, you, when you got your clinic there started at um, MidMichigan, can you tell us kind of some of the maybe trials and tribulations that you faced? Because that goes right in with the stigma. Oh, sure. Um, so I think uh, the, the biggest part when we first started was kind of, um, you know, educating kind of the surrounding community on what we, we started doing as well as the pharmacies and, um, you know, the administration and and kind of what the uh, the basic kind of harm reduction and um, what we're planning on doing. Um, we started from the ground up, so we implemented all the policies, and um, we started, you know, with a good approach as far as the milieu of the office, everybody's um, um, overall perception, and, and kind of just had some educational things before we got up and running. And we talked about, you know, use of language and. Um, how, how difficult it is for a patient to even come in the, the door and things like that. So um, we took kind of a harm reduction approach and, and just basically, you know, to answer your question, just educated the staff, educated the surrounding pharmacies on, you know, the, the, um, the goal of treatment and our, um, our gold standard of treatment is to use uh, medication for opioid use disorder. So once we kind of, um, you know, set forth uh, uh, educational with the uh, community and the pharmacies, we really got great feedback, so. so. You didn't get any pushback from like local government or, you not, know. Not at all. We also, we also reached out to the courts um, and surrounding uh, police, uh, um, uh, police stations or um, jails and they're, they're on board too. So we, we try to communicate, especially with Ross Common um, and their judges. We brought them in and had a, a good question and answer session. And then we also provide, um, they let us, you know, provide MOUD um, for, for individuals as well. So. Oh, in the jail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. I apologize. Yeah. Um, and, and real quickly, so what is your position and where are you located? 
So I am a certified prevention specialist with Catholic Human Services. You probably know my good friend, Joe Jean, um, <laughs> that's very active there. I think uh, mid-Michigan, that's Ogama County. Is that right? We are, we are Roscommon. Roscommon. Okay. I still think that's her. I'm pretty sure that's her county. Uh, we, so um, Catholic Human Services covers 21 counties, but we only have prevention services in 14 of them. And I actually cover Grand Travers, Wilora, and Kalkaska. But I live in Kalkaska and have for going on 20 years now, um, although I'm originally from Traverse City. And I noticed I used to work for Michigan Works in the um, youth services program. I was in charge of it. And probably, oh gosh, I don't know, 10, let's say 10 years ago, when I started to be able to count, you know, on more than one hand, naming names, um, young people that were dying from overdoses, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that's still when it wasn't widely talked about. It's like, something's going on here. We got a problem. This is, and then of course, you know, everything finally blew up and um, just weirdly ended up in this, this job that I'm very passionate about, but um, I'm the, the uh, chairperson of the coalition and Suzanne is my, um, coordinator. She did it for about as a volunteer for years. And I said, let's write a liquor tax grant and get you paid because, you know, you do so, so much. So here we are today. But um, yeah, the jails, I mean, so you heard Suzanne and I both live here in, in Kalkaska County and, you know, Kalkaska is kind of an entity unto itself. <laughs> You know, it's always, it's a very interesting mixture, um, both of, of culture and politics and everything else. So we're working hard. That's why I'm, I'm going to pick your brain on, okay, how, you know, what's the best way to do that education to, to um, you know, the old fashionedness and the, the stigma of things like medication assisted treatment that we still get that oh that's just replacing a drug with another drug and da, 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 and other things that are horrible that I won't even repeat that I've heard in my job um how you know how do you get through yeah so that's a great question and what I do is I try to get myself or, or somebody who has knowledge of the um you know the new guidelines in front of these people you know, with knowledge comes behavioral change. So I'll present, you know, one of my presentations, I'll just show you some of the new ASAM guidelines that came out with some pretty strong language, um, you know, and I highlight that and I tell these guys that at these meetings. So let me, um, can you see my screen? No, we can't. You can see it? There it is. So um, yeah, the ASAM came out with these new guidelines and I put this, um, you know, in front of them. And we know that, you know, I just took it right from the, uh, the new guidelines that came out last year. And I'll, I'll, I'll read this to them, you know, that we know that, you know, providing methadone abuse, even without uh, psychosocial treatment is, uh, you know, the standard of care. And, um, you know, they came with these, these strong recommendations, you know, including individuals with OUD within the criminal justice system. And that's, that's them bolding this. Uh, should receive the same standard of care as individuals uh, treated in the community. Um, this means that all medications uh, for treating OUD should be available and patients with OUD should be allowed to maintain their current medications um, in the criminal justice system. 
Um, so, you know, I read these statements and we talk about this and then, you know, we talk about harm reduction, but then, you know, they'll say the, and then these myths too, that they also say, you know, methadone and bu do not substitute one addiction for another. And we'll talk about that. And then when they talk about diversion, we know that this is generally uncommon and it's less than 1% of all reported drugs diverted in the United States. So we have a kind of a back and forth and we know, you know, kind of what the answers are and we try to dispel those myths as kind of tactfully as possible and you know just kind of educate them and, and and provide knowledge and and go from there so that's kind of what i do and um it's worked out pretty well um so i always and then i always say too you know if anything from just behavior you know these patients are gonna make it a lot easier on you guys in jail you know they're not gonna go through withdrawal they're not gonna act out you know so, and then they, and I look at, then they look at that and they're like, oh, okay, well, if that's easier then maybe. So it reduces. You know, I, I think, and, and not that this should be the, the ultimate reason why, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, they, they want to jump on board with it. But I think sometimes for uh, some people, particularly as you were describing, Lisa, that maybe are a little more old school is, is the cost savings. Uh, one of the, the things that we talk about in some of the presentations is, is that the medications have been shown to reduce costs. The fact of the matter is people getting sick, people overdosing, people dying is incredibly expensive. Uh, and the amount of time that can be saved and money that can be saved from a resource standpoint, whether it's within the hospitals or law enforcement themselves, uh, they're not going out to scenes where people are, are overdosing and having death uh, if they're on this medication can help reduce that. And we've seen that some of the, the times I've talked with law enforcement that uh, that's kind of the point that, that kind of catches their attention that, hey, I'm not going to be going to these types of scenes anymore. Uh, my time can be spent elsewhere, which again ends up saving uh, the county quite a bit of money. So Dr. McMorrick, you said, um, and maybe I misunderstood, your SUD clinic. So does that cover um, uh, alcohol use disorder too? Yeah, we, um, we uh, try to treat, you know, uh, regarding everybody who has a substance use, you know, whether it's alcohol, opioids, um, benzodiazepines, sedatives, you know, as long as, you know, we can kind of appropriately treat them here, we do um, at least, um, you know, try. A lot of times they'll have to go to detox or something if they have a severe alcohol use disorder first, um, you know, but also we're kind of rural and wilderness medicine. A lot of them won't go to a detox because it's an hour and a half away. Right. So we do kind of a, we do what we can, uh, but to answer your question, yeah, we, we treat alcohol use disorder. Are you seeing sort of multi um, substance uh, disorders where folks are addicted to maybe both opioids and alcohol? Um, oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah, okay. Very and um, in, uh, uh, training I was in recently, um, actually, and I was being trained to do presentations and, and uh, you know, there's so many prescription medications now to help with withdrawals and with treating substance use disorder. It's hard to keep up between the brand name and the actual chemical compound name, but I'm, I'm old and I used to be in the army and the army was very fond of um, and abuse when folks had alcohol use disorder, which was probably about 75% of the whole military. <laughs> but, um, and they actually used to, um, I was an enlisted person and my first husband had 
alcohol use disorder and they prescribed it for him. And they would make, you know, soldiers go right in front of their first sergeants to take their antabuse to make sure they took it or whatever. Um, and I saw in this training that I was in that that is still somewhat being used, but I'm real curious because I got a, a uh, it actually was a drug rep, of course, but um, Vivitrol, because a lot of law enforcement guys were really saying Vivitrol was going to be the be all end all because, you know, it didn't have any um, uh, capability for, for abuse, they thought, you know, for, um, and this was, this was my Leelanau County sheriff, um, who was really taken with Vivitrol, but the price was very, um, uh, and so, you know, not a lot of folks could use it to do. I mean, what's been your experience with the Vitrol? Um, so that's a great question. I do use Vivitrol quite often. Um, it has to be kind of the right patient, um, you know, depending on um, a lot of. Uh, so, so I guess I break Vivitrol into two things. So it can be used for opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder. Um, right. I have a lot of patients on it for alcohol use disorder. Um, you know, the, the studies do show the number needed to treat. We're not looking for abstinence. Basically, it's to decrease the amount they drink when they drink and the number of times they drink. Um, you know, it's not going to cause them to get sick or anything like that. It just kind of decreases that dopamine tone. So when they do drink heavily, they don't feel as good. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't have great um, I guess studies are great efficacy with drinking and even with opioids, um, you know, studies show that high, I guess, functioning individuals, somebody like, a, um, you know, who, who, who's, who's really doing well in their work and they know they can't, um, you know, relapse and they know they have a, no other options or they'll get fired and they're in heavy scrutiny. That's when the Vivitrol really works for opioid use disorder. Um, the problem with uh, Vivitrol is it has less of a, um, um, people don't come back as often and they'll just stop taking it and stop coming. So the retention of treatment kind of really goes away after three to six months. So you don't have that reinforcing effect of the Suboxone or Methadone where they'll, you know, get withdrawal or they can't just stop it. Um, so I would say it's, it's less um, useful in a lot of individuals um, with opioid use disorder and retention of treatment. And all the studies show that, you know, you get this the reps and things will say, oh, well, you know, it shows similar efficacy with buprenorphine. It, it doesn't, if you dive into the studies and really look at it, um, it has retention of treatment is a lot worse. And um, so it's all individualized. There are some few that do very well with it. I would say the majority don't. Um, and they'll have to bump up to uh, bup or methadone. What about the sublocade? Yeah, so we are having really good success with the sublocade. I probably have maybe 10 to 15% of my patients on sublocade. Um, and again, that's individualized treatment. It depends, you know, usually my patients that are stable, um, that, you know, are ready to get out of the hand to mouth kind of part of the addictive process. Um, I usually will get them on sublocade. They're kind of sick of, you know, taking something every day or um, they're more stable. I find that they do better. Um, the patients that don't do very well are the ones that are really unstable. They still have to take something and they'll just kind of, you know, they'll just kind of go bananas if they're not taking something every day. Um, so that's kind of my experience with that. 
Um, and then also I'll put patients on it that kind of want to taper down off their buprenorphine over a long time, six to 12 months, because we know when we get to a steady state of sublocade, we have a consistent level of the buprenorphine in your system. And we know through studies that if they stop taking it, that, that, that up to six months to a year, they'll still have buprenorphine in their system. So they'll slowly taper over months to a year and don't get any withdrawal. So, yeah. So what would you recommend for, because um, there are people out there that do misuse these medications. Um, yeah. What, what would you recommend for them? What, what, what do you mean by misuse their medications? I know certain people that, um, that might take like a quarter of a strip one day and then, you know, save it up and take more than they need the next day or they're trading or selling or what, what do you, would you say about that? Yeah. I mean, I, again, I always say, you know, there's always, ex, you know, people are going to do what they do when they leave your office, right? You're, we're not detectives. We are providing a medication that is now standard of care for opioid use disorder. Um, you know, we can only do what we can do. Um, and patients, once you get to know them, and I'm sure Tim can talk about this, once you get to know your patients and establish a really great relationship in your recovery and, you know, they understand, they'll tell you everything. They'll say, doc, you know, I'm not, you know, that three a day, I, you know, that was just when I was relapsing. I'm good now. So it's all about relationships. It's all about, you know, um, gaining trust in your patients. Um, and, you know, these incidents that you talk about or trading here, they're very, they're, they're a lot more rare and you know, I always say it is what it is. I mean, what can we do? I can't follow the patient home. I can't, you know, so I guess to answer your question, I, I, I always talk with them, gain knowledge, try to gain their trust and support in their recovery and, and give them what I can. Would the sublocade be better for someone that misuses like that? Um, sure. Yeah. I've had a couple patients and they'll tell you, they'll say, I ran out early. I was taking four a day. I was just, I was stressed. I was like, I know if I have this medication, I'm going to take it. And I, I, I'll, I'll, you know, first I'll say, all right, we'll give it to somebody, give it to your wife. She can hand it out to you. Or what I'll do is, um, you know, I'll only fill them for seven days with three refills. So they have to, they can only have a certain amount. So they have to get, go back to the pharmacy every week. But if that doesn't work, they'll tell you, I'm, you know, I, I can't, I can't have it in my hand. I just, I know that I just will, you know, take it wrong or won't take it. And, and that, those are really good patients for sublocate. So that's a great question. Right. Um, as far I know that there are some clinics that use the medications for opioid use disorder for meth. What's your thoughts on that? Um, well, just in a broad statement, I guess, we know that there's no FDA approved medications for methadone uh, for stimulant use disorder. Um, I would say I, I don't see a lot of supporting literature to use, um, you know, suboxone or methadone for meth use disorder. We have seen a, a, a study with uses Vivitrol combined with Wellbutrin um, for meth use disorder, but the number needed to treat is 12 or nine or 12. So every, you know, with good results, you need to treat one patient with good results. You need to treat, I think, nine or 12 patients. So it's not great medication. Um, where the number needed to treat with bup or methadone is about two to one. Um, so yeah, we're in, we're in a tough situation right now. A lot of people are trying different things off label. You know, I've tried things like Wellbutrin, uh, Remeron, Fivitrol combined with Wellbutrin, um, N-acetylcysteine. Um, 
So I guess, and a lot of these are co-occurring. So they'll have an opioid use disorder with a methamphetamine use disorder. So if you stabilize their opioid use disorder, maybe with on Suboxone um, and use the counseling and the psychotherapeutic approach and the 12 steps or, you know, IOP or whatever else you can use, you know, then you have a shot and retention of treatment. So it all, you know, it all is, is how they're doing in recovery, I guess. Um, but to say somebody that has only a methamphetamine use disorder and to use a suboxone or methadone, I, I haven't really done that. I was just wondering because they have, a, obviously their dopamine levels are low using, you know, the stimulants as well. Right. So would it raise their dopamine using something like a suboxone? Yep. Yeah, and they and they have done some studies on that, and nothing's really panned out. Um, but it is a little different mechanism um, with the opioid receptors and you know uh, the different uh, catecholamines. So it's definitely a good question. I don't think um, I think they're getting together like a, a stimulant use disorder recommendation and, and developing a um, a panel with ASAM. They actually emailed me to see if I'd want to be involved. So um, it's 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 coming, and the studies are coming. Um, so it's interesting, it's going to be interesting to figure out what we can do for sure. And there has to be something, I mean, I'm seeing it all the time. And, um, when somebody has an opioid use disorder with a stimulant use disorder, I never take them off their Suboxone ever. Um, I'll even sometimes increase their Suboxone because they're just saying I'm craving everything. Um, so we kind of use a, just a approach and we see what we can do. So it's, it's tough though. It really is. Dr. McMorrow, um, when uh, Timothy brought up money, <laughs> and these days, you know, I'm I'm very sarcastic, and it was like, oh yeah, there's there's lots there's money these days in opioid use disorder. Um, it feels to me like the government is just throwing lots and lots of money around to solve the problem without a real super strategic approach. And when you throw money at one area then you know like we were talking about stimulants then then another area grows larger again you know for a while we had stimulants sort of kind of pushed down under control and then the opioid epidemic broke out and then you get a handle on that and we go back to stimulants again um exactly for so in my roundabout way as i'm thinking out loud here about money one of my pet peeves is the whole um, insurance deal. Um, it, would you say most of your patients are um, Medicaid patients? Because it feels like to me that if you have Medicaid, you're in good shape. Um, but if you have private insurance, you're kind of screwed. Um, it doesn't, you know, a lot of things aren't covered. And, and that bothers me. So I just wondered if, you know, that's your sense also. I absolutely. I echo that. Um... I would probably say 85 to 90% of my patients are Medicaid and they are, everything's basically covered for them. Um, and the private, you know, payers are, uh, have to pay a lot more for their medications and things like that. So, and even if you want to go to rehab or detox, you know, it's, it's crazy if you're a private payer or, or, or don't have Medicaid, the barriers are so much more. So. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Hmm. Well, I don't know what we can do about that, but something, I guess, to be mindful of when you, when you vote and you talk to your congressman. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's crazy. 
What um, percentage of your patients do you believe have co-occurring conditions like anxiety, depression? Um, I think uh, I would uh, offhand, I would probably say 60 to 70 percent of them. Absolutely. And that's usually, you know, the average too, um, whether it's a mood disorder, um, you know, anxiety, depression. Um, but then the, 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 the hard part is kind of figuring out what came first. Is it a substance use induced mood disorder or did they have that prior? Um, so yeah, we, we, have, we see quite a bit of it and I try to treat it as, you know, part of that psychological approach to addiction, you know, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And we try to do all four things um, and really kind of hit everything. And we also try to integrate the 12 steps, you know, and recommend it. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but we try to pull everything, you know, to gauge and, and give support in their recovery. Do you feel most of your patients had the condition prior to the substance use? Um, most meaning more than 50%. Uh, I would say probably yes, maybe around that half of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask a question kind of of a personal nature. Um, my younger sister um, died two years ago as a result of her uh, alcohol use disorder, but she also had an eating disorder and um, she had had bariatric surgery probably, I don't know. 10 years ago, let's say. Um, but I'm seeing more and more stories that, especially with women that have bariatric surgery, that there's going to be a real connection between um, SUD and, you know, have you read anything? Have you seen that yourself? Um, I, I have seen that. And I, I listened to a lecture on it uh, last year. It's usually about a, two years, a year or two after their surgery, they developed this. Um, and especially alcohol use disorder. And I'm not really sure why, but um, that was when I was studying for my boards, they talked about that. Um, so it's, it, it is interesting and it's, and it's um, interesting that you saw that. And is, have you, what have you read about it? Well, you know, it's, it's kind of a new emergent thing. And once again, you know, I'm, I'm a pessimist. So, you know, for a while, um, there were lots of bariatric clinics popping up all over the place, and that was the newest and greatest thing. And, um, you know, my personal opinion is, although they're supposed to do a, a, a psychological screening, um, first of all, it's pretty easy to, to get through that. And, and so I'm not sure that that was as much as it needed to happen with her, because she had been bulimic since she was probably about, I don't know. I guess 15, let's say. And, um, you know, I asked her when she said she was getting the surgery, I said, did you tell them that you've been bulimic most of your life, you know? And, and she's like, oh yeah, yeah. They said, it's okay. And it's like, hmm, you're going to have major surgery. <laughs> so, um, so I think, you know, just in my own personal experience, I, I had some questions about how well they did that piece of it. But then um, weirdly enough, here in Kalkaska, another friend of mine, her sister died almost the same way that mine did, had had bariatric surgery, and then, at, you know, really, um, she did both alcohol and prescriptions, and then went to illicit um, heroin, and um, 
but pretty much died the same way. And it, it just, the comparisons, it's like, God, that can't be just coincidence, you know? And so then I started looking into it and found that, yes, it's, we're seeing more and more of that, but um, I'm not sure it's getting noticed, but I'm not sure it's getting studied or, or really, um, you know, talked about as far as how do we treat it now that we know it's definitely, you know, our, our patients that are getting bariatric surgery, getting um, uh, the information that this is a possibility before they get the surgery. I don't know. So, yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if anybody's reached out to the bariatric, you know, society or anything like that, but it is getting, I think from the addiction world, it is getting noticed. Um, and um, so I'm not, I don't, I'm not aware of any studies that are going on right now, but like I said, with that lecture that was just this past year, um, it was in there and talked about, so. Well, good. I, once once things are starting to be talked about, that's the first step, in my opinion. Um, I had another thought, too, that came in my head, and now I went right back out again. Go ahead, Suzanne. I know you got something. Well, when we go to adverse childhood experiences, um, you, you hear a couple of different things. When you look at the ACEs study, it shows that everyone... Um, who has a substance use disorder, has a high ACEs score. Um, and then you hear other things that not everybody who has a substance use disorder has had an adverse childhood experience. Is, or what's your thought on that? Um, well, I would say as far as the ACE scores, most people that do have a substance use disorder have some kind of ACE score. Um, I would say there are exceptions, um, you know, and we know that, you know, genetics plays a huge role, especially when we get, um, so nature versus nurture, you know, the, um, the nurture really starts in childhood, but the nature, um, when you get past 18 and into early adulthood, um, that's when the genetics really kick in. Um, and we know that through studies. So if you have, you know, a grandparent or, or a father who is um, a substance use, you know, you get these epigenetic changes and you can really develop that even without a, a poor childhood or something like that. So you see that genetic component really take off in adulthood. So you'll see if somebody who has a normal, you know, great childhood and normal development, and then you're, you're talking to them, you're like, what, you know, kind of why, you know, you're, you, you had a great upbringing and, you know, everything was great and no ACEs. And then you look at their genetics and they really didn't start till later, you know, 20s and even mid twenties and thirties, that's when their genetics kind of popped in. So that's what I see. You think that someone that starts uh, using at a later age, it's easier for them to go into recovery than someone that starts at a younger age. <laughs> that's a tough question, Suzanne. <laughs> the, the length of use. That's a, that, that's a good hypothetical. I, you know, I don't know. Um, ask me that one more time. Sorry. So if you have like a younger, a younger person that starts using at, you know, 13, 14 years old, um, would it be harder for them to get into recovery because changes in the brain as they use than say someone that started and developed their substance use disorder at 25? Um, I guess in theory, because they have more, they could possibly have more brain changes before you know, um, maturity of the prefrontal cortex and things like that and a longer history of, um, 
you know, addiction process in the brain, I would say maybe, probably, um, but everybody's individualized. And even when you take, you know, they do these studies where, you know, somebody who has, you know, cocaine use disorder for two years, five years, 10 years, you know, it's hard to correlate, even if they took everybody had 10 years, you know, you still see differences in a brain and maybe they look like somebody who had it with two years. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to say, I think that's a, that's a tough hypothetical question, but, um, but I always say everybody's individualized. So I've had people that are, you know, just brutal and, and it's such, have such a severe disease that started when they were 31, you know, it's like, and they're, they come to me at 35 and, and it's, it was off to the races because they had one click, one kind of, um, so. And I realize you're not a, like a, probably a neuro guy, but um, it just so happened I was reading a, a thing on biofeedback last night because uh, my boyfriend took his son who's autistic, had all the brain mapping done and everything, and I was reading all of the results. And I actually had a psychologist that I went to couple of years back that specialized in biofeedback and just sitting here thinking, um, is biofeedback an effective, you know, sort of a co-treatment maybe with, um, you know, medication assisted treatment for SUD or, or is the brain so messed up that, that until the brain gets healthy again, maybe biofeedback, you know, wouldn't be very effective. When you say biofeedback, can you give me an example? Like, um... yeah, this is you know where they put put the sensors on you and um, they they map and monitor your the brain's responses to certain stimuli, and then they can actually sort of predict whether where you're lacking um, in certain kinds of responses, like um, uh, usually emotional responses. And so just sitting here thinking about that, it's like, well, we know that, you know, SUD affects, you know, actually affects the brain. And it takes a while after you're in recovery for the brain to go back to its normal state. Mm -hmm. And so I just wondered, it's like, hmm, probably biofeedback wouldn't be a very good resource for somebody um, who isn't, you know, hasn't been in recovery for quite some time until their brain's back to quote-unquote normal I mean yeah yeah I don't know I don't know the answer to that I don't have any I, I'm not familiar with um I've never used kind of biofeedback so um yeah well it's that whole neuroplasticity thing that okay you know your brain teaches itself to do things in a certain way over time because of repetition and so you can actually go the opposite way too and sure. and unteach it or reteach it and so it's like huh I wonder if that it you know, if that could work with cravings and stuff, I don't know, but. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a good thought to think. Now you would have to use, you'd have to have all the equipment and everything like that to do this, right? Right. I know when I went to this therapist, I walked in his office and he had his machine there. On the stuff. I said, are you going to hook me up to that? And he was like, not unless you need it. <laughs> I guess yeah. I'll find out. <laughs> Um, and he was big into, of course, mindfulness, you know, which yeah, sure. mindfulness, oh, absolutely. Right. And, and that's where that whole neuroplasticity thing. So he got me into the mindfulness and the meditation, which is another way of, you know, reteaching the brain and doing that neuroplasticity yeah, thing, mm -hmm. um, without that. But basically, the 
the biofeedback, it just, like I said, it measures those brain waves as I understand it. So um, it gives you a, a sort of a starting point to look at and then to try certain things to see if it's working, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, but I'm not familiar with anybody that's doing that or I didn't train like anybody that was doing it. So I don't, I don't have an answer. Okay. What is your relationship there in Roscommon County? Um, you, and I'm not as familiar, do you have like a, a hospital with an ER? Um, and, you know, does your clinic uh, actively interact with the ER department? Um, so we are a, um, we have a health center. So we have just physician offices and then we have an urgent care. Um, so I don't know. Um, so yeah, we interact with the urgent care if they need our help or anything like that. Um, or if they need a consult or, or something like that, they'll call us and I'll have, you know, my nurse manager go up there and provide resources or whatever. Um, but usually if they, any of our patients ever come in, they just come down to our office. Um, and then, so our whole bottom floor is the SUD clinic. And then this first floor is, I think we have, we have one pediatrician and then we have four primary offices. Um, and then we have a rehab uh, place for a PT, and then we have an urgent care. Um, so it's not huge, but it, it's, it's nice. Oh, for us here in Kalkaska County with a, a county hospital um, with an emergency room, if somebody came in, you know, in an overdose situation, because we're constantly thinking about how do we get resources into people's hands? Could somebody that was a resident of Kalkaska County drive to Roscommon and be a patient at your clinic? Um, yeah, I mean, we a lot of our patients are not from Roscommon. Um, I would say, you know, people drive an hour and a half, some people to come to our clinic. So, yeah. Right. Well, and I know we've got folks, you know, that are on methadone and they drive routinely to Gaylord. Um, to the clinic there, you know, we have folks because Kalkaska is kind of a treatment wasteland really, and pretty much to get any kind of ongoing long-term, we have, we do have one MAP provider um, who actually is a counselor and then he uses a prescriber, a doc that's all completely telehealth from another state actually to do the prescribing. Um, but other than that, we don't have anybody in Kalkaska County, um, so you have to go to Travers. Or you, you know, we do um, refer a lot of people to Bear River, which uh, you know. So I, I'm always trying to think of, okay, try this, try this, go here, go there, call here. Um, I mean, I wish, I wish we did have more, uh, but I think part of that goes back to that stigma again. And even you know, when you look at Traverse City, um, which is another one of my counties fairly progressive and up in a lot of ways and a little backwards in others. You know, um, uh, people have tried to open medically assisted treatment clinics and, and gotten pushback in Traverse City. Um, so you said you have an affiliation with Bear River. I had heard at one point that they were going to uh, lose their detox um, uh, center because of some rules that changed about having, having to have a doc 
you know, either on site 24 seven or, and there was kind of a big panic or whatever, not too awfully long ago. Apparently that didn't happen because you said they still do have detox. Yep. Yep. The medical director for the detox is, uh, I think it's uh, Robert Smith. Um, so he's over there, but I, I didn't hear anything about that. Um, as far as that goes, uh, -uh. Yeah, I, that was probably maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago where some, some state law or rule changed and, you know, where you could get by with having a, a physician's assistant, mm -hmm. um, on site or whatever, you know, during some of those off hours, something changed and both ATS and Bear River were kind of in a panic that they were going to have to close their, their detox, um, center, which, um, you know, it's very, very necessary. Yeah. And, uh, I didn't hear, I, I just signed on with them about a year ago, but, um, from everything I've, you know, Dan, um, in everything I've, I've seen they're they're moving forward. They're actually expanding tremendously. So, um, but yeah, I, I didn't hear any of that. Um, but I could always look into that too. So in Lisa, it, uh, it sounds like we actually will be adding some more providers there in Kalkaska and speaking yeah. with Jer Jeremy at uh, Kalkaska Memorial Hospital. Uh, we're just trying to kind of nail down the specifics, but there's a, a number of physicians there in the ER and the, the primary offices there in the hospital that are looking to become wavered and they're going to start an MOUD program there as well. Awesome. Well, and you know, I've got my fingers in all kinds of pies here and, and that's how, you know, um, I, so I'm so pleased to hear that. Very pleased to hear that. Do we have a time frame? We don't. You know, I, I met with Jeremy uh, maybe about a month ago. Lisa actually helped kind of set that up. Uh, and, uh, you know, we kind of had uh, Jeremy was going to go back and kind of identify which players are going to be involved. There's a group that it kind of said that they were very interested in. Uh, right now, I just touched base about a week ago. Uh, some of the docs were on vacation and just getting back in. So, um, you know, we've got waiver trainings here, one uh, April 8th, and then again, May 14th. So hopefully uh, we can get them into one or both of those uh, and then get it started right after that. He was also, I think, trying to coordinate with Paul Oliver there in Benzie County, because Benzie County is just very similar to Calcasa County in many ways. Uh, right. There's really providers there. Uh, the need is probably about the same in both counties. Uh, and Paul Oliver, Dr. Morrow is one of the, the county hospitals there as well. And I don't think they have any providers in Bensie County either. Right. So um, Christina Eichenroth, who works for Munson and Travers, she had approached us a while back um, from for support from the coalition for a grant that they were trying to get that had to do with the emergency room in Kalkaska. And, you know, it's like, sure, I'm willing to support anything that's going to get this county moving, but I haven't heard anything if it's, you know, if they were awarded. And I wasn't completely sure what the grant was for. I just knew it was for increased SUD services through the, through the ER. Did Jeremy say anything about that or mention it? He didn't. He just is kind of the, the champion there of this. And uh, he just kind of been slowly kind of talking to different positions there at the hospital, trying to identify who was interested. And, you know, he got his blessing from above to, to move forward with it. Oh, our fingers crossed. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so Dr. McMorrow, as far as um, success rate for your patients, 
um, do you do any kind of family education for the family members of, of the patients? And do you think that that increases their success rate if the family's on board? Um, so I think it does, as long as the patient wants the family involved, obviously. Um, and what I do is I offer them, you know, I say, bring in whoever you want to be involved in your recovery and I can talk to them. And so we hand out sheets about, you know, the addiction process as a, a chronic disease and I answer questions and try to involve their family members because they're going to be the best support if they understand what's going on. So yeah, to answer the question, absolutely. And I think that really helps in some patients as well, you know, cause they'll, oh, well, my mom didn't even want me to come in here. Or I said, well, bring your mom. So I spent half an hour talking to mom. And after we talk, it's like, oh, wow. Okay, great. So. Good. That's, that's my feeling. To get the whole family involved if possible. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whatever support system they they want, and um, you know. I think uh, supportive family and community makes a, a big difference for recovery. Yeah. Even the the studies show the milieu of the office. You know, just our secretary and um, our nurse manager, and you know, people will say, "I had one patient this morning say, this is my only appointment every month I look forward to." Because they come in, you know, the secretary's great. They get candy for their, their kids. They get, they want coffee, you know, just that whole acceptive environment. They know it's a safe place um, and they know they're supported. Um, I mean, that's a huge, huge difference. So. And they're never judged and they're never, you know, judged or, or punished. There's no punitive for relapse. Um, you know, we hand out, we, we try to do positive reinforcement. We hand out our own, um, you know, our own uh, uh, tokens, you know, for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Um, awesome. Yeah, so we're setting up a contingency management program to get back with the meth and the stimulant use to try to, you know, hopefully improve on that, so. With the, um, you know, several years back, thinking about stimulant use, I had both a son and a stepson who were diagnosed with ADHD, and so we're on, and I can't remember, it was Concerta first and Adderall after one or the other, anyway, all through school, and then uh, uh, both actually chose when they were about 18 to discontinue their medication, but do you think there's any connection at all between um, stimulant use as a as a kid and then later possible stimulant use um, disorder? Yeah, so it, there's pretty strong evidence that if somebody has a true ADHD um, as a child and continues it through adulthood and they're not managed properly, they will and can have a high prevalence to get a stimulant use disorder. Yeah, that would make sense to me just because of the whole theory of self-medication. Right. So I've had a lot of patients that have been on, you know, these stimulants, they get into meth and then I get them back on their correct, you know, at a, you know, a bivance or something. Right. And they're stable as can be and they take off and they're, they're wonderful. They say, finally, I feel normal. I'm back on my meds, you know, and nobody wants to give them the stimulant that they're supposed, that they're supposed to be on because right. they have stimulants, but they're, they're they have this stimulant use disorder because of their their process that they 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 went through before that. Oh. Um, 
yeah, that's so something that is, you know, one of those rumors that I hear quite often that people, and I tried to explain this to my son, you know, those that truly have ADHD, and of course, there's a lot of misdiagnosis because things, you know, symptoms can mimic other things. I get that. But it doesn't go away when you're an adult. You don't grow out of it. You know, you may find ways of managing it, but, um, you know, truly, I think that's just the way you are. Yeah. Yep. And a lot of people will get better once that, you know, maturity of that frontal lobe and then they'll develop, um, you know, ways to cope behavioral wise. So, right. Right. Well, and he, you know, just, I could see it. He wasn't a behavior problem. This is my son. When he got diagnosed, it was the fact that academically he was losing ground. And, um, and that was why it was the inability to pay attention and absorb. And the minute we started him on medication, his attention improved and his grades and performance in school improved. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, he, of course, every, you know, side effects. And I think that's probably even with your SUD patients, you know, some of the side effects of, of the meds, do you get complaints about, well, I don't want to, you know, for your SUD patients, I don't want to take this anymore because it, you know, makes me feel like this, or it does this to me. Um, are the, are the, how do you manage side effects? Um, well, as far as, um, like buprenorphine or, um, yeah, that's a good question. I don't get many side effects. And if I do, um, you know, somebody will say I get a little swelling or I get a little nauseous, but what patients will do, they'll kind of work through that. They'll eat differently at a certain time or they'll kind of manage it themselves. And it's usually transient um, and it kind of goes away. So honestly, I don't get too many long-term side effects on something. Um, I'm trying to think specifically. Um, you know, you see that more in methadone. We don't do methadone here, but you know, some hyperhidrosis in methadone, you see a lot of, you know, distinct sweating that patients, you know, have a problem with, um, you know, some mouth irritation with the suboxone film. Sometimes I'll switch up the, uh, the subsolve or even the sublocate. Um, so there's a lot of, oh, the, the headaches sometimes, um, and the nausea. So there's, we'll change formulations a little bit and tinker with things. So usually we work through it. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've ever had a patient that their side effects were so severe, you know, knock on wood that I've had to kind of stop their therapy. Is it safe for someone who might have an opioid use disorder and an ADHD to take both types of medication? I'm sorry, Susan, you were breaking up. What'd you say? Is it, would it be safe for someone that has an opioid use disorder and is on something like Suboxone to use medications for ADHD as well? You asked me, is it okay? Yeah, is it safe? Oh, oh, safe, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think so. If they have, you know, I have, you know, a, a handful of patients that are on, you know, their stimulants with Suboxone um, and they're doing great. Um, you know, they have a diagnosis of ADHD um, and, you know, it's all about function and how they're progressing in their recovery. If they're not abusing, you know, their stimulants and they've been on it and they're progressing well and they're, you know, using their Suboxone and, you know, they're moving forward and, you know, that's absolutely, it's safe. Um, the problem you get into is when you're just treating everybody the same, you don't individualize treatment, you know, somebody, you know, you put everybody on a stimulant and everybody, you know, that's, 
that's kind of not great practice. So, um, but yeah, if you take everybody in an individual and, you know, kind of march down their history and, and do what's appropriate and, and manage them appropriately and, and responsibly and, um, you know, make sure you, you know, you're, you're gaining ground in their recovery. I think it's reasonable. What are your thoughts or have you read studies um, about long-term medication assisted treatment? Um, sure. You know, are there, are there dangers to that? Um, no? So the ACM guidelines just came out again with the statement that said that there is uh, I'll share this with you. Um, there is no, can you see this? Um, Coming. There we go. There it is. Where is it? Here it is. It's a minor revision. There is no recommended time limit for pharmacological treatment with buprenorphine. We know that patients who discontinue buprenorphine treatment should be made aware of the risk associated with overdose and especially the risk of death if they return to opioid use. Um, we know that people that discontinue methadone studies within a year, I think they'll relapse. Uh, I forgot the percentage. Um, is it? Sorry, I don't, I forgot it offhand, but so to answer your question, um, yeah, here it is. We know that coming off methadone, 82% relapse by heroin by one year. So, so we know that there is no time limit for medication for opioid use disorder. Similar, there's not a time limit for somebody who's being on hypertensive drugs or, you know, diabetic drugs. Um, and usually if somebody wants to come off, I, I work with them, obviously, but they have to really have a good plan. They have to be stable and they, and they need to have a compelling reason why they want to come off because otherwise the stats and the studies show they have a really probability of relapse. That's the reason I asked that question is that's kind of a, a urban myth that circulates still around a lot that, oh, well, you know, you're, you're not going to be on this forever and you have to wean yourself off and yada, yada, yada. And it's no, that's, that's, our, that's archaic thinking now. And we know that that's not the case. Um, so. And I kind of knew that. I just wanted to get it on the recording. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we got a couple more minutes. Is there anything anybody else wants to mention or ask or say or? I just want to say thank you, Dr. McMorrow, for your, your candid answers and you're so approachable. And um, it, I was just telling somebody the other day, you know, I, my daughter is in um, the, the medical industry and she actually educated me quite a while back that it's okay to ask doctors questions and, and you don't always have to believe everything they say verbatim and, and yeah. you should ask them questions. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you make it very easy to ask questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate it. Um, I also say too, with addiction, we're still kind of not making this up as we go. I mean, we're learning so much every week, every month, every year. So and there's a lot of stuff that it's okay to not know. And, but, you know, as we work together, I think it's, it's great that we're moving forward. So that's another big thing that both Suzanne and I believe in is that um, we got to get out of our individual silos and communicate. And so, you know, I like your multifaceted approach because really, if we're going to make progress, that's the way it has to be. So, absolutely. 
Well, I appreciate your time, guys. Let me know if you ever need anything, you know, in Kalkaska area or you want me to come up and, you know, talk to anybody and, um, you know, if Tim or I needs to get up there and, you know, present or, um, you know, whatever, because we know knowledge builds, you know, changes in behavior, so. Well, someday we have plans for our coalition that, you know, we want to have big fancy summits where we get all our wonderful guest speakers and get everybody together, but it's probably not for a while yet, <laughs> but we will definitely um, keep you in mind. So. Yeah, if you, and if you ever have any uh, way to get in with the sheriff's department and the courts, we'd love to present with them as well. I know, <laughs> We're working uh, on it. I know that'll be a, a big beacon of change if we can get them on board in, in the, the community. Uh, so that'd be a, a great place to, to go. We'll, we'll, we'll keep you in the loop, Tim. That's absolutely sure. <laughs> Thank you.